to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We're going to go against the grain here for uh, another couple of hours. And John, we have a whole bunch of important domestic and international topics to get into. But I want to start by saying, this isn't funny. This is awful. Uh, You know, I ride my bike to work. Uh, And so I I ride down 16th Street. It's a very pleasant ride coming to work because it's almost entirely downhill. Uh, Going home is a different matter. But so I'm riding around um, Thomas Circle right here. And uh, I'm I'm waiting at a light and I look over on the circle, which is a small traffic circle with some grass in the middle of it. Uh, and there's a woman who is firing up a little camp stove, I guess, to make breakfast in front of her tent. There are three tents now on Thomas Circle. This is a quarter mile from the White House, right? You, if that, yeah. right? You can stand there and, and see it. And there are people who are living in tents, uh, cooking cooking breakfast on camp equipment in the middle of a traffic circle. And it's just a reminder, this is not how people should be living in the U.S. This is no. just, this is outrageous. This is, it, it's it's such an indictment, really, of our society. You see the same kind of thing at DuPont Circle, which is really one of the wealthiest parts of, of all of Washington. The entire circle is taken up uh, by a tent encampment, and then it extends up uh, Connecticut Avenue. It's it's sad and it's uh, it's a sorry state of affairs. You know, in the wealthiest country in the world, we shouldn't have people going hungry and lacking for the most basic things in life, like a like a, a place to stay, a place to sleep. Yeah, and and I have said this before, and I will definitely say it again, but it has proliferated enormously in Washington D.C. in the last ten or fifteen years. Uh, there was always homelessness, and it was always an indictment. Uh, but the number of tent encampments has grown and spread so far uh, that it shows. You know, this is this yeah. is not something we're in the midst of um, solving right now. Much the opposite. So yeah. we might talk a little bit about that. Uh, we are going to talk in the first hour about the European Central Bank raising interest rates and what this is going to do. Uh, the UK has announced plans to address its energy crisis. We're going to talk about the impact of those plans. We're going to talk about the Patriot Act being used to aid January 6th investigations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what what. It brings up a lot of questions about what what is domestic terrorism? Uh, are we going to see domestic terrorism charges? And then if not, you know, is it is it appropriate to be using, you know, the, the Patriot Act itself and its overreach aside, the fact that it exists as a tool, you know, a tool for uh, investigating and confronting domestic terrorism, it is it is it appropriate to use those tools if the charges you're going to end up with do not include terrorism, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. A lot of questions there. We're going to have a fun art conversation about dozens of items being seized from the Met uh, because they were stolen. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Stolen items in museums. Who knew? We're going to talk about freedom of religion, infringing on people's health. We'll talk about uh, some revelations about how CNN works that came from Anderson Cooper and were supposed to be a secret, uh, but somebody let them out. And uh, I wanted to talk a little bit at the top here, uh, John, about um, Trump 
realizing that among the things taken from his home, this comes from a, a court order uh, the judge revealed on Monday, uh, that some of the things the FBI took were medical documents, tax correspondence, and accounting information. And he's pretty mad about learning that. I'll tell you the truth. I would be pretty upset about this, too. You know, this is one of the things that the FBI does. They'll they'll raid your house. They'll come into your home uh, looking ostensibly for the things that they say they're looking for on the complaint or on the search warrant. And then they'll take things that have literally nothing whatsoever to do with the investigation, like your passport, for Mm -hmm. example. They did the same thing to me. Uh, In Donald Trump's case, his medical records. Now, what his medical records have to do with their investigation is a mystery to me. My guess is they have nothing to do with the investigation. And so, you know, maybe the guy's got a legitimate complaint. Yeah. It's, you know, this is the whole story with every aspect of this uh, investigation so far. I mean, clearly, it seems pretty clear that Trump did something wrong. Trump's been 100% shady from the start. Absolutely no surprise if he has done something wrong. You're not supposed to take home classified documents. And also, it seems like this has been known about for a while. And so every aspect of this also legitimate investigation is political. And it's so uh, we're having one of these one of these days where these threads are are wound so tightly that pulling them apart it's it's necessary, but it's difficult. I hate it, John. Right. <laughs> I hate it. Because <laughs> you have to walk this line where you're saying, I'm not saying you should be allowed to just waltz around with classified documents or that I don't think Donald Trump is above trying to make a buck uh, through access to national security. But again, right. again, what's the point of taking these medical records if not to just sort of have some some uh, leak blackmail to hang over his head, right? And what's the point of waiting this long to conduct this, this investigation uh, so yeah. publicly, you know, it, yeah. Questions we raised yesterday, yeah. questions we will probably continue raising. And I'm, I'm interested to know, too, if any of these complaints that Trump has so far constitute an actual defense or elements of a defense. Or yeah. is this just Trump, you know, complaining because he's Trump? Right. And that's, again, it comes down to, like, it it, it, it probably isn't a defense, uh, but it is a, a legitimate complaint, a political complaint. You know, it's sort of the other side of the coin. Right. Um, a couple headlines to get to before we bring on our first guest. Uh, this article by Ukraine's, the commander-in-chief of Ukraine's armed forces, uh, has been making some headlines because he said something about uh, limited nuclear war can't be ruled out in the conflict. This, The Washington yeah. Post ran with this as their headline. What the guy was saying was basically, you know, anything's possible, right? And it seems like what is more uh, interesting and newsworthy in this uh, article that was posted in an English on Ukraine and forum is that the leader of Ukraine's armed forces is asking on the eve of uh, the monthly discussion by the uh, Ukraine defense contact group for more long range weapons that would allow Ukraine to bring the war to Russia by being allowed to strike, you know, inside Russia beyond Crimea. Uh, The commander in chief, Valeria Zaluzhny, said this war is definitely going to go into 2023. And if you want it to wrap up, then this is what we're going to need. And of course, Ukraine wants the capability of striking Russia. Right. Of course, they want that. Um, 
And I imagine, of course, under discussion at this uh, at this monthly meeting is just how much range the U.S. can provide Ukraine with its weapons without provoking Russia into, you know, dismissing the degree of separation between Ukraine and the countries that are that are backing it and that are providing as as you know, he says very clearly, Ukraine's defense is 100 percent dependent on this uh, support. You know, this kind of made me a little angry when I read it, Mm -hmm. Um, just because I thought it was a very irresponsible thing to say. That would be like, uh, let's say, the United States fighting some country that we are fighting, Iraq, uh, Iran, Yemen, whatever, and a leader in that country saying, well, we can't rule out a limited nuclear war. The United States may nuke us. Well, the United States is not going to nuke you. And Russia's not going to nuke Ukraine. This was an inflammatory and irresponsible statement. And if he didn't mean it, then the the media, you know, should have sought clarification. I, I think this is a non-story. Mm-hmm. Zaluzhny also said, it, yes, it was us causing those explosions in Crimea. That's how far we can shoot now. I mean, everyone had, you know, it had been pretty much attributed to to Ukraine, but Ukraine had been kind of coy about it. But initially, you know, those those explosions were a surprise, right? Because it wasn't known, it wasn't publicly known that Ukraine had weapons that could reach that far. And right. what has been happening is that every time the U.S. sends a new tranche of, uh, you know, weapons to Ukraine, it describes what it sends, but not in detail. And it can use some fuzzy language about providing anti this or that capability to uh, sort of obscure exactly what is being sent there. And so there's been this like slow but steady increase in the impact of the technology we're sending that we don't necessarily know at the time. And so, you know, again, just how much of this wish list uh, Western partners are going to decide to provide remains up in the air. But, you know, all of these all of these changes in the war could have far reaching consequences. I mean, certainly it, I, I can't imagine that Russia wants uh, the the battlefield to expand. Right. But certainly not. It would certainly there would be pressure on the Russian government if uh, Ukraine suddenly has weapons that can reach into Russian territory. Yeah, without a doubt. The meeting that is underway in Germany has already resulted in another $675 million for Ukraine. That is separate from the $2 billion that Antony Blinken announced on his surprise trip to Kiev today. Uh, that $2 billion is going to be spread around Ukraine and Eastern Europe. I haven't mm-hmm. seen that there is anything new in these packages. No, no, I agree. Yeah. But, you know, it's funny. You and I talk about this all the time. It's a billion here and two billion there and 800 million more and now another two billion. And we're going to get to the point, I would think, where where people on Capitol Hill or American citizens finally say, wait a minute, wait a minute. What are we getting out of all this? Mm -hmm. Is is this just a question of trying to bog the Russians down in uh, in a, a war, a long term war? And if it is, are we prepared to pay for something like this? Is this really in U.S. interest to to be engaged even indirectly in a never ending war? Mm-hmm. I, I would venture to say that it's not like, did we learn nothing in in Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and Vietnam and Somalia and Yemen and all these other different places? I just don't see the upside. 
No, I mean, well, I think there I think the answer is there's an upside for a very small cohort of people who have a lot of yeah. power. And the other question I have, and this might be you know, extending the comparison too far, right? But we are about to talk about uh, the European Central Bank raising interest rates to try to tame inflation and the impact that that's going to have, because Europe, Europe does not have only a cost crisis when it comes to energy, like the UK. The rest of Europe has an actual supply crisis. And right. they are staring down a recession. And it's kind of, it's in a less extreme form, you know, what's going to happen when... Uh, Europe is in a situation where people are losing their jobs, people don't have very much money, and what their partners are supplying are uh, weapons and military aid. You know, I mean, in this case, it's the the U.S. is going to be supplying these weapons to like stable and established governments and not like militia groups on the ground. But, (laughs) you know, even if it's not a, a, a sort of direct comparison and proportionate comparison. It certainly is an echo. And, you know, I, I don't think I don't think the social consequences of that kind of imbalance are are generally positive. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. <laughs> the most tepid way I could possibly say that's bad. No, I, yeah, it's it's bad. And I think what's what's the worst part is that we just simply don't learn from our mistakes. No. Because I and we I think don't. at some point you have to conclude, I think at some point you have to conclude it's not someone somewhere is not making a mistake. You know, yeah. uh, people yeah. can keep counting it as mistakes. People who have some rose colored glasses on or who have not uh, been uh, uh, disabused of the idea of American exceptionalism. Like, I think there are a lot of people who can genuinely see this as, oh, no, we just accidentally made the same mistake again. But the people who are making that mistake who are like pulling those levers. I don't know how much longer we should we should continue to think that they're they're doing it accidentally, especially when we know who continues to benefit. Yeah. And we should also think about public opinion in Europe, too. You know, we complain a lot here, but the American people are not ready to walk away from Ukraine. Well, it's different in Europe at least in Western Europe, mm-hmm. where they're going to be facing this this terrible winter with outrageous fuel costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're already seeing, and we're going to talk about this later in the show, we're already seeing changes being implemented in the UK. It's probably coming soon to Germany and to France and to you know Greece and other places. Uh, but how long are European rank and file, European citizens going to tolerate going without mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so their government can afford to keep propping up Ukraine militarily. Yeah. We're not we're not in this alone. No. And actually, we are going to go uh, straight into that conversation uh, right after this break. We might get a chance to talk a little bit later in the show about you know, Steve Bannon having the book thrown at him uh, over this build the wall <laughs> fraud uh, seems absolutely justified. Uh, wild story uh, about uh, an abortion abortion ballot initiative in Michigan that's being held up over like uh, spacing, word spacing. Uh, It was pretty interesting. And this um, pretty upsetting story about the arrest of a county official uh, in the murder of a reporter who had been reporting critically on him. So we might be able to hit those a little bit later. We're going to take a very quick break here and come back to this 
continue this conversation about uh, what is in store for Europe and what kind of destabilization we might see after this winter. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte, here with John Kiriakou, picking up where we left off, talking about moves being made by the European Central Bank and the UK government and the impact that they are likely to have. Joining us is author and economist John Ross. He's a senior fellow of the Chongyang Institute at Renmin University of China. John, it's great to speak with you again. Glad to be here, as always. Let's talk about uh, Europe first. The European Central Bank today said it would raise its key interest rate by 0.75 percentage points, which the Wall Street Journal tells me is the biggest increase since the early days of the monetary union, uh, which would take us back to 1999. I, I think this is interesting because, unlike in the United States, Europe already has an energy uh, supply crisis that appears likely to push it into recession uh, without any help from the central bank. And so, you know, you wouldn't think that it would need an extra push like the one the Federal Reserve is offering in the United States. I, I mean, I'm not an economist. That's why I'm asking you this question. But raising interest rates in a supply crisis seems more complicated than just a cost crisis or a money supply crisis, if that makes any sense. And so I wonder if you can talk to us about, you know, whether that is more complicated, what the reasoning might be here and what the result might be. Well, they've got themselves in a mess because they're not prepared to take the radical measures which are necessary to deal with the price increases. Yeah, it's crazy in, in if you look at it from a simple point of view, to be raising interest rates when Europe is certainly heading into a recession is um, a very bad idea, but they haven't got any choice because they're not prepared to do any, to do any of the things that will get the prices under control. Mm-hmm. The, the first one... The first one would be to bring an end to the war, mm-hmm. um, because although the the price increases internationally started a long time before the war, it's a big myth that the international inflation uh, was created by the war. It wasn't. It's 89% of it, for example, in the US took place before the wars broke out. Mm-hmm. But in Europe, it is true that there is a particularly big problem um, because of its dependence upon gas. And uh, the gas pr- gas price, I mean, gas in the West European sense, not petrol, but, mm-hmm. you know, stuff that's not liquid, it flow, you know, is um, has gone up by five times. So, that's a particular crisis. They're not prepared to deal with a crisis which is produced by the war, and neither are they prepared to really tackle the energy companies, because um, the energy companies are just um, extremely profiting out of this um, situation. Now, mm-hmm. if, if you're not going to do either of these things, you haven't got very many methods to get inflation under control. And the one they're going to try, which probably won't work, is um, raising interest rates. But as you quite rightly say, this is going to put the economy into a for, uh, deepen the recession, which it's already certainly heading into. But they've, they've boxed themselves in because they won't take any radical measures um, to deal with the situation. And so then it seems like they're going to 
put themselves in a situation where they're, you know, if you see, uh, you know, we're heading into winter. We've had a lot of conversations about uh, Europe already imposing uh, energy rationing policies. Uh, people are going to be colder, perhaps, than they want to be. And in addition to this, you have people uh, losing their jobs because the central bank is taking steps that are going to, you know, uh, create a recession and uh, and cause unemployment. I mean, they're going to have to then shell out to to take care of the population in some way or another, uh, unless they go the American route and just let people die. Uh, and so I wonder what we should expect to see, you know, sort of socially, and then what the governments are going to have to do uh, to support their population in this situation that they've created. Well, they're going to try to avoid. Um, well, they are partially going to let people die on the American model, mm-hmm. um, but. Um, what they're basically looking to do is to try to avoid the worst extremities of the recession by um, putting up, putting money into dealing with the energy prices, subsidising prices, etc. To some extent, but then their intention is to make the population um, pay it back. I mean, if you look at Britain, for example, the scheme which is being touted at the moment, which is came up by the government, is that they're going to so-called freeze energy prices at a very high level. Mm-hmm. Um, but then customers are going to have to pay it back uh, in future years. But that just means you're locking yourself into high energy prices uh, for a long period of time. So they're going to try to unload it onto the, um, onto the population. Uh, the problem that they've got is, one is there are beginning to be demonstrations in Europe against this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most significant one was in uh, Czechoslovakia, mm-hmm. um, or sorry, not Czechoslovakia, the Czech Republic. Right. Excuse me, Czechoslovakia disintegrated. Right. Um, the um, where the reports are between seventeen and hundred thousand people. That's in a very small country. That's a very mm-hmm. big demonstration. Uh, there's demonstrations in um, Germany, and the situation is politically destabilised, and a lot of governments are going to fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a result of this. Um, the German coalition is in terribly unpopular. The British government is extremely unpopular. And doubtless, um, in low, low, low other governments around Europe are going to be extremely unpopular. So the problem they've got themselves is that they are going to attack the population. This is going to destabilise um, the situation politically. I mean, in Britain, when we've moved into the largest number of strikes uh, that we've seen for 15 years, and this is doubtless going to be replicated in other countries in Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I was saying this to John earlier, and I I do think it's, you know, this this might be a pretty stretched metaphor, but it is, you know, uh, you had the U.S. Secretary of State dropping by Kiev to announce uh, another $2 billion going to Ukraine. Uh, This is also going to be spread around, um, I think it was 18 other countries for defense spending. Um, Ukraine, for the foreseeable future, is going to need a, a lot more money than that, right? Uh, and so if you have Europe in a recession, it's very hard to see the EU as a whole wanting to continue bankrolling the Ukrainian state, right? Not even the war effort, right? The, the Ukrainian state needs quite a lot of money every month to keep functioning. It's not really able to make any money right now. So you have less money for Ukraine, you have more pressure on the United States, and you have the United States giving relatively freely when it comes to military supplies, but uh, we're not so free-handed in other areas. And so you have Europe in a, in a much more limited fashion 
kind of experiencing what we have done in other parts of the world, where um, you end up with a population in a state that is relatively poor, but then suddenly relatively flush when it comes to military spending. And I, I wonder, you know, what what this does, perhaps, to to at least to Eastern Europe, uh, politically and economically. Well, this is the third wave. Uh, the biggest one of attacks on the population's living standards, which are created by the US, um, what I would call Cold War policy, although, of course, in Ukraine it's a hot war and not just a cold one. But overall, that the, the first one was the attempt or the, or the getting of Huawei out of uh, 5G contracts in a series of countries. That's mm-hmm. put up the prices for telecommunications. That's entirely due to the anti-China policy. Mm-hmm. The second one, which particularly hit the population in the United States or hit the population in the United States, was the increase in tariffs or the imposition of tariffs against China's uh, exports. That's cost the average American household several hundred dollars a year. And now we've got the effects of the war, which is really created by the expansion of um, NATO into Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. So what you've really got now is the third wave of attack on the population which has been caused by the U.S.'s um, Cold War policy. And, the, the, the yeah, we'll see how much the population stands up to this. Initially, they're, uh, of course, stunned, etc., and, and hopeless confusion has been spread around the place. Um, you know, the de- denial of the most obvious facts, such as that, for example, in the U.S., as I say, 89% of the inflation in the U.S., the last figure being 8.5% in, ju- in July, and it took, pl- as take, took place before the war started. Mm-hmm. So you've got... You've got sort of fantasy in the media, um, which confused the population. But of course, the population is now suffering greatly directly. So this is this is going to go on. This is going to be if the U.S. is going to pursue a Cold War policy against China and Russia, it's going to have to make uh, ask for enormous sacrifices from the population and conceal why these pop these sacrifices or attacks are taking place. And this is just this is the pattern of what's going to happen. I also want to ask uh, about the UK and the plans that Liz Truss announced for the UK's own energy cost crisis. As you mentioned before, she said she was going to freeze energy bills, although she's going to freeze them at pretty high levels. Uh, The government is planning to lend to energy companies to help them stay liquid, and she's going to lift the ban on fracking, although it doesn't seem like that is going to do anything to immediately alleviate this problem. But, that, you know, there's a lot of talk of, of long-term energy independence for the UK. Uh, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about who who you see this plan as benefiting and, and what the response has been to it. Well, the, the chief benefit is really the energy companies. It's what it seems like. Yeah, you're giving yeah. them money. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, in two ways. One is she's rejected a windfall tax. It's a totally simple mechanism. I and mean, even the Labour Party, which is not exactly the most radical organisation in the world, mm. has never, under its present leadership, has called for a windfall tax. The companies are making, the, the energy companies are making gigantic profits mm-hmm. far above their norm, normal and should impose a tax upon them. She's, she's deliberately refused to do this, which mm-hmm. means it's going to be landed on the population uh, in, 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 in the end. Secondly, the scheme for dealing with so-called long energy is a, a ramp which is going to aid, again, the energy companies. What she's doing is she's basing itself on three things, fracking, uh, North Sea oil production, and uh, nuclear power. Mm-hmm. But these are particularly the latter two. I've got timescales far too long to deal with it. The real quick way to ramp up, um, uh, you know, to increase 
energy supply in this country, you know, is through renewables. You can install uh, onshore wind, for example, in a question, in a few months. You can ensure offshore wind very quickly. You can install solar panels, mm -hmm. but she doesn't want to do that. Re renewables, because she wants to funnel money to the fossil fuel companies, the the you know the the oil companies, and she wants to funnel money to the big corporations, uh, which are engaged in uh, you know nuclear power. So therefore, basically, what it's doing it's it's a fraud, even from the point of dealing with the energy mm -hmm. um, situation. Ev everything has been focused on transferring money to the big energy companies. It's completely, uh, you know, transparent. And also, I mean, it's hard to imagine uh, the population really wanting to go ahead with fracking, which is a really dirty process, when you just had in the last week a bunch of headlines about, you know, sewage all over beaches. You know, there is there seems to be a, a pollution crisis already in the UK. Fracking is only going to exacerbate that. But has there been, you know, is there push back against this plan. And I guess related to that, um, what is the state of labor as an opposition party, right? Because it seems like a very big part of this energy crisis is support for, for this ongoing war in Ukraine. But labor is very committed, you know, as committed as the Tories are to, to that fight. And so I wonder, you know, where they are as an opposition force as all these discussions are happening. Well, there's two questions there. Let's deal with the fracking first. Mm -hmm. The um, There, yes, there's going to be interesting contradiction because, of course, most of the places where fracking could take place are rural and the Conservative holds the seats and they've been strongly opposed by, by people who vote for them mm -hmm. um, in opposition to fracking. So this is going to be a very real contradiction, a very interesting, you know, in, real interesting one because the, the local opposition is very strong and it's going to hit into the Tory, um, Tory base. So that's a big problem. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid on Labour, um, it's just... With, with the one or two small exceptions, like the windfall tax, I, I've got to give credit. There's no point in just, you know, sort of slandering people for the sake of it. The proposal, mm -hmm. the demand to have a windfall tax is exactly, absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. But apart from that, they haven't been out dealing with the question of, uh, you know, the war and they're not really in opposition to the government. I mean, I, I think the real policy with the British British ruling class, you might put it, is the following. They 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 entrust entrust the new prime minister to have somebody who's supported and is a representative of the extreme right wing of the Tory party. Mm -hmm. She what she believes in is she believes in the American model. And what she wants is the Americanization of British society. That is, you slash welfare, you slash uh, regulation, you slash environmental protection, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now, th this is going to be drastically unpopular. So, in my opinion, she's going to make a huge attack on the population and lose the election in two years' time. Um, then what you want is a government that won't reverse any of her measures, mm -hmm. which means a Labour government. That's what that's what Blair did for Thatcher. I mean, the real person who cemented Thatcherism in place in Britain was Blair because he refused to reverse her measures. And what they're hoping for, the British capitalist class, I would think, is that Starmer will do exactly the same. Mm -hmm. So she's going to introduce, she's going to attack, introduce a tax on trade unions, she's going to attack a, a tax on regulation, etc. This is going to be drastically unpopular. She'll lose the election and then, then Starmer will ensure that none of it is overturned. I, I wish I could give you a more optimistic perspective um, as regards the Labour Party, but I can't. What, what is not the case, what is the complication, 
is, of course, the population is discontented. As I say, we have the biggest wave of strikes for 15 years. You know, this is hundreds of thousands of people are going on strike at the moment in Britain. Yeah. As Stormer certainly, uh, unfortunately, does seem like the man for the job, right? And they seem like they've done a pretty good job of purging labor uh, of anyone who would, you know, uh, or attempting to purge labor of people who would object to this process. Yeah, that's it's, it's real McCarthyism inside the Labour Party at the present time. You can you can now be expelled. I mean, not you can be. You are being people are being expelled for you know liking a tweet by someone who is considered dubious, or even in some cases, what it appears is retrospective. That is, organisations are banned. Somebody supported them before they were banned which means there was perfectly within the party rules to support them, and then they're being thrown out anyway. Mm -hmm. So this is, you know, it really is. I mean, result of which is the Labour Party, of course, is losing huge numbers of members. I mean, the the, the, the expulsions is certainly in thousands, mm -hmm. um, and the, the uh, number of people who have left in disgust is over 100,000, and therefore the Labour Party is in financial crisis, but they don't care because their real plan, the real plan of Starmer is he wants to get uh, funding for the Labour Party from rich people. So it looks like the um, the US model again, because in Britain, traditionally, the main source of funds for the Labour Party has been from the trade unions and from the individual subscriptions of members. And he wants to move towards a US system whereby basically big donors will give them money and therefore, of course, control the policy of the party. Yeah. Make the Labour Party into the Democratic Party. Good luck yeah, with basically, it. basically, yes. <laughs> yeah. John Ross, uh, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. That was author and economist John Ross. He's a senior fellow of the Chiangyang Institute at Renmin University of China. Uh, thanks again, John. Thank you very much. Hey, uh, John Kiriakou, I want to take uh, just a second to tell you a, uh, a wild story out of Michigan that's just come to my attention. Are you ready? Uh-oh. Okay, yeah. I'm ready. So this is a story about, uh, there are a couple things going on, uh, but abortion rights supporters in Michigan have been trying to get a, an initiative on the ballot in November that would enshrine the right to an abortion in the state's constitution. So they've been going around, as one does, when you want to do something like this, gathering signatures on a petition. They have gotten more than 750,000, right? They've gone to all counties in the state. This is a state record, according to reports that I've looked at. Uh, the signatures represent more than 9% of the voting population that wants this on the state. It's far, far beyond the threshold, uh, which is about half as much. Right. But the state Supreme Court is going to have to decide. It seems like they're, they're I guess, deciding if, they have, if they're going to decide whether this um, provision can be included on the ballot because Republicans Republican opponents to it have taken issue with the typesetting of what? the language. And so they are pretending they can't read it. And so if you look at what happened, first of all, if you're reading this on a computer, apparently it looks totally fine. But when it was printed out, you know, it, like people like to do, they sort of force justify their text. Uh, sure. So it's like uh, in parallel lines and there are no uh, right. uneven edges, whatever. And so then what happens when you do that is sometimes the spacing between words is minimized right. and it looks like right. words it, are running together. Yes, it stretches you, out. Yeah, yeah, it stretches out. In this case, it's condensed it down. Right. You can completely read this text. The way it's written is not confusing Anyone who's ever read anything in their lives can see 
and understand what they are reading here. Um, but because the Republicans in the uh, right-leaning state legislature really don't want people to have an opportunity to vote on this in November, they are saying uh, that this should disqualify the the initiative, that it's like gobbledygook, you uh. can't read it, whatever. There aren't any typos, right? The language is all there. You can read it. It's like a printer error about spacing between words. And uh, one of these lawyers uh, who spoke to a, a news organization that was writing about this said, we have constitutional amendments that have typos in them, right? <laughs> that have worse errors than this. And so uh, what happened was the initiative was brought to wh whatever group it is in the legislature that has to decide if it's OK or not. Uh, it was tied because all of the Republicans said, no, we can't, we can't read this. No one could possibly read this text. And so it oh seems like God. the Supreme Court is going to have to weigh in here. In the meantime, a um, justice in Michigan, a judge in Michigan, has just struck down this dormant 1931 law that would ban abortion in the state. She found that the law already violated the state constitution. So... Presumably, if these if the legislature wants to ban it, they'll have to come up with a new law. They can't just revive this one. Um, and they'll have to see if their complaints about uh, the line space on this ballot initiative are enough oh to keep it off God. the ballot in November, where they're, I think, quite justifiably afraid that it would pass. Oh, this is just outrageous. But, you know, this is the this is the political system that we've given ourselves. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was. It was just sort of inevitable that we would end up uh, talking about something like this. It, it, and I'm going to point fingers right now because mm -hmm. I'm in kind of a little bit of a bad mood today. Uh -huh. I'm going to I'm going to point my finger at at Newt Gingrich. Mm. When Newt Gingrich became Speaker of the House. This kind of silliness found a, a place in American politics. And it's just gotten worse and worse and worse ever since the mid 1990s. Mm hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'll go ahead and join you there. I think we might as well just bring in our next guest because we're going to continue uh, weird legal conversations here. We are joined now by Kim Keenan. She's adjunct professor at George Washington University. She's former general counsel of the NAACP. Kim, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Always happy to be with you guys. You have great conversations. Thank you. We're not going to spring this uh, Michigan weirdness on you. We are going to talk about uh, some, some new rulings on religious freedom that I think we should all find troubling. And we'll talk about uh, how the Patriot Act is being used in these January 6th investigations. Um, but I want to start with with public health and freedom of religion. A federal judge in Texas yesterday ruled that requiring employees, employers to provide HIV prevention drug PrEP violates the employer's religious freedom. Uh, so you can't get preventative medicine if your boss doesn't like the way he imagines you might catch a disease. And in this case, the company argued that providing coverage for PrEP drugs facilitates and encourages homosexual behavior, intravenous drug use, and sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman. And to me, it feels like they're trying really hard to make this not just about disapproving of gay sex, but that's, I think, really what it is about, right? They're not worried about heterosexual infidelity. And an ironic twist here is that something I learned yesterday, it's women 
who have sex with men that the CDC in recent years has been really trying to get to um, consider PrEP. This is a drug that can prevent you from getting a very serious disease that exists in our community. We are not getting rid of it, regardless of how you get it. But it's it's mostly associated with gay men. And so that's being used as um, as as a weapon here. And and so I wanted to ask your thoughts about, you know, whether this decision is defensible in any way and how concerned we should be about freedom of religion arguments succeeding in court against uh, would seem to be pretty clear public health um priorities. This decision is not defensible. I mean, I, I could I could give you lots of gobbledygook and lots of uh, constitutional language, but let's be honest, this, this is indefensible, and you are so correct. You know, most people don't realize this, but most new cases of AIDS are women who had sex, probably with their husbands, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them, who had sex with their husbands and don't know that their husbands may be participating in this um, sexually um, active behavior and bringing basically the disease back to their wives. Mm. So their whole religious offense with this is almost laughable because at the end of the day, this is a drug that could save the lives of women who believe in marriage and who trust in the institution. And so it really turns that on its head to say, you know, we're offended by this. And I, I, I see, it's like all the conversations we've been having lately, these things, turning things on the head. I'm always talking about mm. turn the boat too fast, bad things happen. You know, what happens if employees just decide, well, we're not going to work here anymore. We're just going to go across the street to places where, you know, you mm-hmm. say, we're going to accommodate this because it's outrageous and we know better. Mm-hmm. And then you got these other people who are trying to prove some religious point or some conservative point, and they're trying to hammer it home. So basically, you know, if you get a life-threatening disease, but we don't like who your partner is, or we don't like that someone, ha- someone, not, probably not even you, has sex outside the marriage, or you are somehow seen as sexually promiscuous, we don't feel our religion makes us uncomfortable with that. I mean, how, and you know what's really sad is, you know, you see all these articles about all these, all of these institutions, uh, you know, we, I'm not going to name types of religion because I'm not picking on anybody. What I'm saying is, you know, a lot of this behavior turns up in the most restrictive places and the most restrictive practices. So for us to now basically doom people because these drugs cost so much money. I don't, I'm, I don't. I know they're working on that somewhere else, but for right now, these drugs are really, really cost prohibitive. And if you have to pay for them out of your own money, it's almost like dooming you to poverty because in order to stay alive, you'll pay this money, but you won't have money for rent. You won't have money um, to feed your family properly. So it's, Absolutely indefensible. I do. I don't even think in this conservative era that this will hold up. There, there may be again some judges who are um, in office who are so focused on the ideology that they've forgotten about the legal principles and have forgotten that this is a democracy and have forgotten that some of this is really privacy and that the choice of religion itself is something that relates to privacy. So for them. Um, make this ruling, it is it, absolutely opening it up like the wild, wild west. 
I mean, I know this is maybe taking it a little bit far, but we do if we do allow employers to get this granular about what they are and aren't going to cover, you know, this is it seems to be we've decided that this is allowable uh, when it comes to preventative medicine. But like, you know, maybe they decide they want to talk about treatment and like you can't get penicillin because we don't like it that you got syphilis, you know, I mean, it's just it's ridiculous. And also, it seems like it would be so easily solved and the government would, you know, be able to stop fighting this if we could get away from an employer based health insurance system, you know. Well, again, it's a slippery slope. And I think that we'll, you know, put that question at the top of the day if you start to see people saying, well, you know, if you don't feel good about a drug that, um, you know, makes HIV something you can live with, then you aren't going to feel good about contraception. You aren't going to feel good about penicillin. You aren't going to feel good about, you know, and, you know, women have a whole host of things that we have to do that's preventative. And so now all those things are going to be evaluated treatment by treatment. I'm telling you, and we've had this talk before, they are tearing apart our health system at the same time with this foolishness and nonsense. Doctors are not going to want to play this game of, well, I saved your life, but I offended the conservatives or I offended this religion. Or I, I mean, it is, it, I'm, I'm telling you, the smartest people are going to decide to do something else um, with their futures. And um, it's a mess. It's a mess. And you're right. Somebody's got this. Get in here. One of the one of the branches of government has got to stand up and righteously say, "Enough! Mm-hmm. This this didn't work before. It didn't fly before, and nothing has changed to change how this should go." And um, employers are in a. I'm telling you, it's a slippery slope. One day it's going to come back to bite them in the butt because what's going to happen is there's going to be a case where they're denied something that is truly life saving. And the religious reason is, or the conservative reason is not going to make sense to the average person. Mm-hmm. And that's when you lose the bully pulpit. Let's talk about uh, this invocation of the Patriot Act in these January 6th investigations. Um, unsealed court documents show that in July 2021, federal investigators who were looking into the Oath Keepers and their involvement in uh, that riot. Oath Keepers, of course, is a group of uh, former but also current law enforcement and military members who have their own far-right constitution-defending crew and usually lots of weapons. And they're one of the groups that seem to be part of um, organizing some of this travel to uh, the Capitol on January 6th. So investigators are looking into the Oath Keepers, they're looking into the leader of the group and the lawyer for the group. And instead of asking a judge in Texas to approve a search of this lawyer's cell phone, they invoked a provision of the Patriot Act that allows any magistrate judge with authority in a district where domestic or international terrorism-related activities, not just crimes, have occurred to approve warrants everywhere. So the activity an activity occurred in DC, this judge can approve a, a warrant for a search anywhere. Um, I will also say that in articles about this, uh, the lawyer, uh, Kelly Sorrell and others involved, they were not named in the documents, but people have connected the dots. And so we are, you know, r- reports are pretty certain these are the people we're talking about. And I wonder 
you know, what what you make of this use of the Patriot Act, right? Because on one hand, uh, you have uh, this riot being called domestic terrorism by the FBI and other elements of government. And so on one hand, I think, well, should we be surprised that terrorism statutes are being used to investigate what they are have termed domestic terrorism? On the other hand, you know, the, the Patriot Act has been correctly decried as, as a terrifying overreach. And uh, the idea of jumping over jumping over the heads of state legal processes uh, and this language about, you know, quote unquote, activities and not crimes is, is kind of scary. Plus, the person whose phone they're looking into is a lawyer. Uh, so, so what do you make of this use of the Patriot Act? Yeah, I, I think the, the Patriot Act is, you know, if it's problematic, before it's problematic now. Um, I do think that what you see in the use of the Patriot Act is a recognition that we actually do have domestic terrorism. Mm. So I think I think that's what people don't have and focus on is that you know we've we've always had um, domestic terrorism. It is you know it, is, it doesn't look like it does when we see it on the international news or on CNN. But, but in fact, we do have it. And of course, you know, what happened on January 6th, it wasn't just domestic terrorism. It was an attack on our very existence and our way of life. Um, so um, in that sense, you know, one might say that this is an appropriate use, right, of the, of the Patriot Act. Although, as, as we often talk about, I mean, I, I always see the slippery slope and... Mm-hmm. Like you said, one one per, one administration's use of the Patriot Act is going to be totally different, as we can now see from the other administration's use of the Patriot Act. I, I think that we need to, you know, be thoughtful in how we use an act that has some overreaching in it. But I I I, I guess the surprise, if anything, is is that we're finally recognizing that what was done on January sixth. And at other times around the country is, in fact, domestic terrorism and really call it that, mm. treat it that way and give it the the force that we would give it if it was any any one or any other time. Mm. I think that's the key thing that's away here. Um, hopefully it will be uh, used in such a way in this situation where people say, well, you know, well, that's fair game. I mean, you, you know, the thing that you're being uh, called into question about is something that's directly related to why we have this act. But again, the Patriot Act has always been shrouded in really sort of a, you know, it, it, it has never been seen as something that wasn't um, uh, an overreaching or, 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 or sort of too much, but a recognition that we are at a time in our history where we need something mm. to deal with domestic terrorism. Yeah, I mean, it is. it, it does seem like uh, an upgrade in tactics by the FBI and a, and a really scary tool, perhaps in an administration uh, that wants to present any organized protest as terrorism. You know what I mean? Like that's and this is it, it sort of brings up a recurring theme of like these you don't want to, I think, not not use something that's effective because it could be used dangerously in the future. But I mean, I, I don't know how this doesn't open up the possibility of, you know, we've already seen states uh, enact uh, 
more criminal penalties for things like camping and trespassing that are clearly aimed at being able to more harshly prosecute protesters. Uh, and we have seen, you know, members of state houses seeing uh, protests outside saying, uh, you know, this is this is worse than January 6th. Look what we're facing here. And so I think there is a real a very real concern uh, that, you know, this idea of what is domestic terrorism could spread beyond entirely beyond what is reasonable and be used to just crush crush the kind of dissent that we would support right right no 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 i mean again and i, and I think people have been really um you know again people some people are willing to play fast and loose with the facts there, there have been countless peaceful demonstrations in our country mm-hmm. and i still remember being a law clerk and having there be a right to life um, demonstration at the same time as an, you know, anti, um, it, like both sides were on the mall at the same time. So you had the pro-life and then you had the, you know, you had the anti, uh, the movement that prevents people from getting an abortion. Well, guess what? They managed to do that peacefully and they were all very passionate, mm. all managed to coexist on the mall because what, that's what makes us America so that everyone can see the competing opinions. And so, and they did that very peacefully. There were no, you know, injuries. There was no shouting or cursing. You know, one had one side and one had the other side. And so as a result, you know, we had this history of being able to do this and we still do it. There are lots of examples of where we still do it, but because there are, there is an element that has decided that the fact of the protest should now be um, tamped down in a way that's extraordinarily violent. And I I think what's really interesting to me is, have you noticed that when we watch international um, television and you see, like, you know, smoke bombs and you see them using, you know, everything from tear gas to actual weapons to tamp people down when they demonstrate in, you know, Middle Eastern countries or other countries, Mm -hmm. They're all like, this is horrible, and, you know, it's not, you know, human rights are being violated. But yet we're we're on the cusp of trying to become that very, very place. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, um, you know, the world is always watching. People are always watching, and we need to be true to what we say we are. You know, people have the right to disagree, and they have the right to disagree peacefully following certain um, public rules. But, you know, this whole notion now— that we're going to prevent people from doing it because we don't like what they're saying Mm. actually what it is. That's taking us back to a different point in our history that we shouldn't want to return to. I want to ask one quick question about the kinds of the tools versus the charges, I guess, Uh, because we haven't really seen domestic terrorism charges yet so far. I think there was one case where prosecutors requested a terrorism sentence enhancement. The judge denied it. Is there anything unusual about like using a tool that is designed to investigate terrorism uh, that isn't resulting in in terrorism charges? Is that is that unusual or, or no? Is that something we should be looking at? I think it's just problematic. I mean, you know, people are going to be looking, you know, if justice is using, like you said, an enhanced tool, then people are going to want to see an enhanced result. And that, you know, that could be able to explain that, oh, yeah, well, we use these all these enhanced procedures, but you know what? We found that people were only trespassing. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that's, not gonna, that's going to sound like 
we pulled out a bazooka for something that requires, you know, um, not even a taser. So, um, you know, I think that, that, that I, I feel like justice is being extraordinarily deliberate in how they're proceeding. Although I think at some point, you know, there, there better be a there there or it will seem as though this was done for nothing. And I, and then I think we live in a time where everything can be politicized and we, we don't want justice to be politicized. We really want it to be something that's meted out in a way that treats everyone the same. And, and if you're breaking the rules or you're violating the law, then, and you're violating it in a way that makes us feel more enhanced about our safety as a nation, then, then, you know, they shouldn't be doing it unless somebody really has some evidence. There's some evidence that someone is really violating them at that level. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hopeful that they're being deliberate so that things are dotted and crossed so that it's correct. But, you know, you never can tell lately. It's like you got to wait and see. We all got to wait. Kim Keenan, I want to ask if we can steal uh, two more minutes from you after the other side of this break, because I wanted to ask you one more question, but we have to take this hard break at 1 p.m. So I think I'm going to get the question out and then get your answer uh, on the other side and keep you for a couple more minutes. But it's, it's about this Supreme Court case from North Carolina, uh, which is over this issue of independent state legislatures. This case was brought by Republicans in the state who say the Constitution actually says that it's only state legislatures that have the authority to manage uh, election processes or federal election processes in the state, and that state courts should not be allowed to decide if their actions are legal or not. So that would just mean the state legislatures could decide what they want when it comes to uh, federal elections. And now a group comprising the chief justice of every state Supreme Court in the country has filed a brief offering their opinion that judicial review is part of the system of checks and balances embedded in the Constitution. Uh, They're just one uh, of many groups that are filing briefs in this case. And so on the other side of this break, I want to ask how significant this is. We're Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We're going to come right back. where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we're just wrapping up our conversation with adjunct professor at George Washington University, Kim Keenan. Kim, I just asked you a really long question about uh, all 50 chief justices of every state Supreme Court filing a brief in this Supreme Court case from North Carolina about independent state legislatures. I just wonder how how significant is is this kind of move, and do you think it's going to have an impact? This is huge. It is absolutely huge. It says that when when 50 state Supreme Court justices agree about anything, it should let you know that something really bad was happening and they have to speak out about it. They don't get together. They don't make public pronouncements. If they join together in a brief, you've messed up badly. These people in North Carolina missed civics class. 
The reason why we have three branches of government is for the checks and balances. And they want, because they've been so good at it so far, they want to erase the ability to have checks and balances so they can just call the elections the way they want. They keep forgetting that if people don't vote and it's not perceived as a fair vote and there's no check and balance on it, that's what makes the democracy work. That's where the trust and integrity comes from. This is huge. I don't know that it'll get the, the play that it should get, right, that people will get to hear about this the way we're talking about it, but this is absolutely huge because they are telling, they are signaling to us that in North Carolina, they're basically trying to do away with the ability to have an objective fair election that's capable of being reviewed objectively by another body. Mm-hmm. Looking at the Supreme Court we have now, would you want to weigh in on the, the fate of this case? You know, um, I am concerned because I do feel like this court has lost some of the real prestige that they've had, and now they're being seen as a political body and not as um, really the best and the brightest jurists um, um, who are capable of, you know, objectively using the law to make an outcome. But, you know, if they get this wrong, then we're all in a lot of trouble. And I got news for them. It will erode. It will erode the ability of the court even further. But they should know Mm -hmm. (laughs) that, um, that, the requirement of the three branches of government is to prevent a situation where these people have absolute power. I mean, that's really what they're asking for, absolute power on elections, regardless of, you know, whether they, you know, we do it wrong, so what? It's us. We get to decide. I mean, if we have a body like that in America, it's not really American, is it? No, I mean, it's not. It's not the thing that we've, we've told we uh, we are governed by, certainly. Uh, Kim Keenan, really appreciate you riding with us through the break and, and answering this very last important question. That was Kim Keenan. She's formal general, former general counsel of the NAACP. She's an adjunct professor at George Washington University. We always appreciate her time. Uh, thanks for joining us, Kim. Hey, John. Yes, ma'am. You want to hear this story out of Las Vegas that's so uh, outrageous? Oh, my gosh. I have followed this because it seemed crazy from the start. And it just got crazier as it went on. So go ahead and explain it to our. Well, our yeah, you could tell me if you want to. No, so last night, um, the uh, county. No, last night, the night before last, the Clark County Public Administrator Robert Tellis was arrested on suspicion mm-hmm. of murder in the fatal stabbing of a reporter for the Las Vegas Review Journal. The reporter's name was Jeff German. Uh, he had been investigating. Uh, Tellus, among others, and Tellus blamed his investigation for his primary election loss uh, in the summer. Uh, and so they first there was news that they were searching Tellus's home, uh, and then we got the news that he had been arrested. And I think John had he not had he made public statements about uh, how uh, yes. he was going to get get back at him. Yeah, do you remember what those? Yeah, were? he he made. He made several public statements on Twitter, mm-hmm. which is even even worse. Um, and and he tried to make them sound like he was joking. Um, he wasn't joking. And this reporter was well known for not just being a great investigative journalist, but being a muckraker 
and uncovering, for example, organized crime in Las Vegas and political corruption. And uh, he was on this this county uh, uh, commissioner, supervisor, whatever his title was, like white on rice. Mm-hmm. But everything that he wrote, he was able to back up with, you know, witness testimony and and uh, documentary evidence and proof and everything. Uh, you know, it's one thing for a, a politician, an elected official to say, oh, the media is against me. It's an entirely different thing to to lie in wait outside a reporter's house so that you can execute him when he gets home yeah. in the evening. And that appears to be what happened here. Yeah, it's astonishing, right? I mean, it's it's just, I mean, it seems like, again, he hasn't been uh, convicted in a court of law yet, right? So he's he's accused of right. this murder. Um, but uh, the things that he had been accused of and that uh, German had reported on were, uh, you know, b- uh, bullying and abusive management style in his uh, company among his employees. So kind of seems like he's proving himself to be exactly the person that German reported on. Yeah. And uh, obviously, yeah. uh, a, a horrifying shame that this uh, investigative reporter lost his life over, uh, you know, trying trying to report on someone who was running for a county office. Crazy. Yeah. Just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I wanted to say uh, real quickly, too, as as the show is going on, um, we're getting more and more news. If anybody cares about this kind of thing. Are you going to say about Queen the Queen? Elizabeth. Yeah. Yeah. I feel I feel bad. And, you know, we've got. We've got our colleague Lee Stranahan tweeting, I don't care about royal families. Mm. Um, I feel kind of bad. You know, she's 96 years old. Her family's now gathered at her side. And um, it appears that she's in her final hours or final days. I feel like she lived a very long life of incredible wealth, none of which was earned. So I don't feel (laughs) there are deaths I feel much worse about. And I don't like royal families either. I can find it in my heart to feel, you know, sad that someone is losing their parent or grandparent. But don't ask me to feel sympathy for the royal family under any other circumstances. Yeah, in in Greece, we uh, we threw out our royal family, told them not to even dare think about coming back. Yeah. Yeah. We did that here too. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yes, indeed. All right, John. Well, it, it, uh, if, if we have our next guest ready, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to get that started. The, the justice department is weighing whether to appeal a federal judge's decision to grant Donald Trump, a special master to review these highly classified documents that were retrieved from Mar-a-Lago. We talked about this at length yesterday, Well, today's New York Times reports that Trump apparently took the documents, get this, because, quote, he was afraid that Joe Biden would destroy evidence of a deep state plot against him, unquote. And we're now learning that while President Trump secretly tried to build criminal cases against his political enemies, just like Richard Nixon did back in the 1970s. A book by a former top Justice Department prosecutor, that's the the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, says that Trump sought the prosecutions of John Kerry, former Democratic presidential advisor Greg Craig, former Trump attorney Michael Cohen, Trump detractor attorney Michael Avenatti, and others. And in political news, the New York Times reported today that Republican insiders believe that they are indeed going to win a slim majority in the House in the November elections which would make it very difficult for Kevin McCarthy. They say that McCarthy is a weak leader who will not be able to control the most conservative elements of his caucus. 
And finally, Anderson Cooper from CNN testified in a case recently that was filed by a Florida doctor against the network after it alleged that the doctor and the hospital in which he worked had a pediatric cardiac surgery death rate three times the national average. That turned out to not be true, and the doctor and the hospital sued CNN for defamation. But in his testimony, Cooper revealed something very interesting. He said that the network's experts are given the questions that they're going to be asked in advance, and they're given the answers to the questions in advance, Mm -hmm. while guests are just taken by surprise. So we're going to talk about that with John Jeter. He's an author, two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, former Washington Post bureau chief, and award-winning foreign correspondent on two continents. Always good to have you, John. Welcome back. Thank you very much, John. Great to be here. John, yesterday we mentioned that legal scholars seem to be coming out of the woodwork to say that the federal judge who appointed a special master uh, in the Trump documents case had made a serious legal error. Even Bill Barr, who was Donald Trump's attorney general, said that DOJ should appeal the decision. But today's Washington Post says that the Justice Department hasn't yet made a decision to appeal. Why do you think that is? The, The judge said that DOJ, in the meantime, can't use any of the information against Trump that was found in the documents. And that pretty much paralyzes the case, does it not? Yeah, I, I don't understand this at all, John. I mean, I, I know what I know is that there are no victims in this case, right? Uh, it seems <laughs> that neither Trump nor uh, the Justice Department have sort of uh, planned this out. Like they haven't planned their next move, and so it seems like they're crippled by their both sides are crippled by their ineptitude. It seems to me, and I don't. I have to be honest with you. I don't follow this case this case very closely. I, I it, it seems to me it's almost like the. The Monica Lewinsky case uh, back when I was reporting for the Post, and it seemed like when I was in the Chicago bureau, uh, my editor would call me like once every two months and tell me to do a story, and my response would be would always be, "Is that still going on?" So this is kind of the same thing to me. It's just not. Uh, it's not clear to me what's going on, and I don't understand almost anything really. Right? Like I don't understand um, what's in those documents that Trump thought would. Save him. I can't imagine there's anything that Trump that that would save Trump from any sort of, uh, even if it is some sort of, of pardon the, the pun, trumped up charges. What's in those documents that Trump thought would be his saving grace? Beyond that, what did the Justice Department think? I mean, I don't see how they can pursue this without martyring Trump to his supporters. Everyone else, yeah. of course, hates Trump, but his supporters. This is going to rally them, right? This is going to gin up um, uh, uh, support for him, or, or more support for him with his supporters, which seems a very dangerous thing. So I just, um, I, I can't make heads or tails of it. I don't, um, I, I don't see a scenario where either side can claim any kind of clear victory. I, I have to agree. I'm mystified by this, uh, unless they're just being cautious and they're taking their time. I don't know. Another thing that we learned today um, was that when the FBI entered Mar-a-Lago, they also took Trump's passport and his medical records. Taking the passport actually didn't surprise me because that's what the FBI does. In in my own case, when uh, when they came into the house, they found in a box that I had kept all of my old um uh, passports from my CIA days. Of course, they had been invalidated. They weren't good for anything. 
I just kept them as souvenirs because they showed my travels all around the world. And then when I went to arraignment, they got up and said, Your Honor, when we went into his house, we found six passports. So we asked permission to seize his passport so he can't travel. Well, they weren't they they weren't good passports. They were they were old and and like I say, they weren't good for travel. But anyway, that's what they do. So that didn't surprise me. What did surprise me was that they took Trump's medical records. Um, and for the life of me, John, I I can't think of a reason why the FBI would seize Donald Trump's or anybody else's medical records. Do you have any thoughts on this? I, again, I just it's baffling to me. I mean, uh, it would seem impossible to make a martyr, to make Donald Trump into a sympathetic case, but I think... Uh, I think that's what they're doing, at least with a certain portion of the population. I don't understand what his medical records would have to do uh, with any uh, classified documents that they were going after. It's just, it just seems like a keystone cop sort of situation, or or, or maybe you know the, the, the sort of the famed uh, story about the CIA trying to uh, topple Fidel Castro by making his beard fall out. It seems like they're borrowing from that from that playbook, you know. Uh, yeah, it, none of it makes sense to me. I have to admit, none of it. Yeah, I, I'm. I again, I'm going to use the same word. I'm mystified by it. Let's talk for a moment about this assertion that Trump was afraid that Biden would destroy evidence of a deep state plot against him. I'm not even sure where to begin with this. I suppose there is a deep state. Uh, I personally call it the federal bureaucracy. Uh, But there's nothing in Joe Biden's history to indicate that he would destroy documents in what would be a felony violation of the Presidential Records Act or the Federal Records Act. Is this a red herring? Is this something that just came off the top of Donald Trump's head or or is this a defense? Why do you think Trump took these records with him? I, I mean, you know, I guess I guess, uh, you know, um, I, I do think Trump is paranoid. But, uh, but the, you know, the old saying, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean anyone's out, doesn't mean that no one's out to get you. I, right. I, I, I think he's paranoid, but I do think uh, that the Democrats are clearly trying to keep them from running for office uh, in two years. I don't know that Joe Biden would go so far as to destroy uh, any kind of classified information or any kind of official document to do it. I doubt that. Uh, and I, I, I rather think the Democrats are, are pretty much operating in plain sight. Uh, and so this seems like an extraordinary measure and a counterproductive measure for Trump to have taken. Uh, but, you know, again, I'm just... I, I, I just get the feeling that both sides are so desperate that the political agenda uh, at the top is so clueless about what to do next, about how to govern a country that is so fractured, right, and and yet doesn't quite realize why we're so fractured. And the, and the, mm-hmm. the ruling party is just as clueless as the population, and so everyone's sort of clutching for straws. I just don't know how to explain almost anything that happens in D.C., inside the Beltway these days, it all seems rather baffling and very much strange yeah. from real life where people are talking about how they're going to pay back their student loans, you know, uh, uh, whether they can afford to eat or pay their keep the lights on this month. Uh, this all seems very detached. I, I think that the political class in Washington writ large is going to play is going to pay a very high price for this um, ineptitude. Oh, my God. 
I'm, I'm fascinated by this assertion, John, uh, in a new book by a former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York that Trump sought criminal cases, criminal charges against people that he didn't like. For example, he sought a felony charge. I have to try not to laugh, but he sought a felony charge against John Kerry simply because Kerry was the guy who negotiated the JCPOA with Iran. Uh, Trump also wanted to go after Michael Cohen, Michael Avenatti, and these others who had angered him. Fortunately, the U.S. attorney had more sense than to, you know, acquiesce to something like that. But these are Richard Nixon level allegations, and they're criminal in their nature. Are you surprised by this? And what do you think the media reaction would have been if this information had been made public during the Trump administration? It, it seems just completely scandalous to me. Oh, yeah. Well, we, we know what the reaction would have been. It would have been more of the same, but but, but with good reason. I mean, this is insane, uh, the idea that he would pursue criminal prosecution against his enemies. And, and let me just say this. It, it's almost, uh, it, it almost feels odd to say, but it's true. Um, uh, Donald Trump, while both men are evil, Donald Trump is no Richard Nixon, who was really a very brilliant man. Um, yeah, he was. Donald Trump is not. You know, uh, Nixon used his powers for bad, for evil, but he was a very smart man, and Trump is just the opposite. Again, just clutching at straws, it seems to me. And, and I have to ask, who is advising him? I mean, whose advice does he take? Seriously. So much Seriously. he does is just off the wall. I mean, just um, completely uh, counterproductive, even for someone like him who has a reputation, at least among his followers, as a maverick. It just seems, um, it seems like it's stuff that his his supporters have to explain as opposed to something that uh, rallies the troops around him. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Let's talk about politics for a minute. Um, 538.com says that the Democrats have now a roughly 80% chance of keeping control of the Senate, but Republicans have a 65% chance of taking the House, even if the projected Republican majority is slim. But if it is slim, Kevin McCarthy as Speaker is going to have a very tough time maintaining control of the right wing of his party, the far right wing of his party. The far right could effectively be running the place, they say, which means no cooperation with Democrats, including on the issue of the debt ceiling, which sounds very boring, but is very important. And if Trump withdraws his support for McCarthy, they say McCarthy will be doomed. So first of all, how do you see this playing out? We've seen former Republican uh, speakers of the House just cave to the right wing of their party and end up not being able to pass meaningful legislation. Is that what we're looking at with Kevin McCarthy as speaker? I would imagine. I, I you know, I don't know that the that the Republicans have any better leadership than the Democrats, even given their sort of very narrow agenda. So yeah, I would expect that there's going to be some gridlock. Uh, and again, you know, the battle within the Republican Party, which is very true of the Democratic Party, even though they have done a pretty decent, and by decent I mean corrupt, job of suppressing the far left within their party, that the Republicans are going to have this problem with the far right within their party, which is represented by uh, their most popular politician, which is Donald Trump. So they're going to have some problems. There's going to be gridlock. Uh, but I think the good news for the Republicans is that the Democrats are every bit as feckless and ineffective as the Republicans are as an opposition party. And so their control of the House, I think, will 
years. And, and, and I think that, that ineptitude, that overall ineptitude is represented by the fact there's no reason that the Republicans should lose the Senate. I'm pretty sure they are. But there's no reason for that except that they have, rep- they have nominated the most I- – I've never seen uh, – I've never seen a political candidate for high office as as – Absurd as Herschel Walker in Georgia. I mean, I, I, there's no reason. Senator <laughs> Warnock is is low hanging fruit. He should be picked off, right? And even still, we see Herschel Walker is, is tied for, tied for the for the lead, basically uh, in Georgia. Yeah, I don't think he's tied. But uh, these candidates are just awful. Um, uh, it was um, uh, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania and the Vance in Ohio. Those are awful candidates, even for the Republican Party. And they just it just seems like they, they've shot themselves in the foot, which I guess is not the first time. But this was just a glaring... Uh, oh, my God. I, I'm, I'm so glad. That, allow me to interrupt you. I'm so glad that you brought that up because I, I wanted to bring it up. Uh, I I heard this kind of joke uh, on CNN. I think it was on CNN yesterday saying that the GOP has a GOP problem with GOP standing for Georgia, Ohio and Pennsylvania, uh, because these are three of the worst possible candidates that uh, that could have been nominated for Senate seats in those three states. Now, Herschel Walker is is tied now. Uh, I saw one poll today that shows him one point ahead of Raphael Warnock. But um Herschel Walker gave a gave a speech this morning that Ron Filipowski posted on uh, on Twitter. He posted the actual the actual video and listen to this. I I don't have the clip, so I'll just read the transcript. Um, He said there was a bull in a field with six cows. Three were pregnant, but the bull saw three other cows up on the hillside and he wanted them, too. So he tried to jump the fence, but his belly got cut up. But the bulls were cows. So be happy what you got. (laughs) He was talking about education. That was the topic of the speech. It was education. And that's that's the quote that he comes up with. Does does this man have no advisors? He reminds me. It's like a Saturday Night Live skit. Back when Eddie Murphy was on, like this seems like you know, Herschel Walker just seems like too unreal uh, to believe, you know. And, and the fact that he has a decent chance of being a U.S. senator is preposterous. It really speaks to the decline of the American Empire that Herschel Walker has any chance at all of being a senator. I still don't think he'll win. I still think as as we get close yeah. to election day. Uh, you know, people will start to really sort of do the math and realize that Herschel Walker is a really dangerous character uh, and a moron. Uh, but yeah. I mean, he's in this race, and he has a—he does have a, a reasonable chance to win this race. He does. He does indeed. I think it all rests on on turnout. But I agree with you. You know, we know thanks to leaks that even Mitch McConnell, after meeting with Herschel Walker, said, "Wow, this guy is going to take some serious handling." Um, this is not somebody that you want to you want to let loose on the floor of the uh, of the Senate talking about legislation or trying to shepherd a bill uh, through the process uh, to law. He's, he's going to be a reliable vote for the Republicans if he wins. But I think he's also going to be a reliable source of embarrassment. I, there was- I predict that if he does win. He will he will overtake 
uh, Clarence Thomas as the most loathed African American in the country. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to read you something that Sarah Palin said this morning on um, uh, the One America Network. Uh, she was asked about her loss last week or two weeks ago now it is, um, which she's attributing to the ranked choice voting system. This is a wonderful quote. She says, um, the election was rigged by this newfangled cockamamie system of ranked choice voting, which allows liberals to skip on in. And it's a very, very potentially fraught with fraud system. Uh, does that carry any weight even with Republicans? I, I have to admit, I am curious to see some reporting on what difference the rank system made uh, yeah. that race. I, I I thought Sarah Palin would win, but I, I'm not that familiar with Alaska politics, so I'm not shocked that she lost, particularly given you know the, the, her very high negatives. Uh, I, I'm not sure. I mean, it could very well be a Sarah Palin offering an excuse. I, I you know, from what I've heard, she's not a particularly great campaigner, and this woman who beat her, from what I understand, is very charismatic. Uh, very charismatic person. And also, there's the Roe versus Wade decision, the, the abortion issue, which I think, uh, I, I don't think it's going to be as big an issue in the elections overall as the Democrats are hoping, but I think maybe perhaps in this race it was a big issue. I'm not sure, but I would like to see some more reporting on this ranked choice um, voting. And, 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 you know, and not that I think it's negative that this uh, woman won, who be, I'm sorry, I cannot remember her name, who beat Palin, but um, uh, I would like to see them. And maybe it's a reason to do ranked choice voting, right? If you get someone right. who seems like, from everything I could, I've read, who seems like uh, the, the, uh, uh, um, a much better candidate than was Sarah Palin. I would agree. Hey, many of us were surprised by this revelation from Anderson Cooper that CNN sends its on-air consultants, not just the questions, but that the anchors uh, intend to ask, but also the answers that they want the consultants to give. This happened to me one time at Fox News. Um, I happened to be on Fox and Friends in the morning, and um, they sent me the questions, and then they sent me this second email with what they called suggested responses, and I told them to forget it. Um, in fact, other networks have made fun of Fox for doing stuff like this. Now we learn that the vaunted CNN has been doing it all along. What do you make of this? You're in the media. Uh, you have long experience in media. Is this dishonest journalism, or is just is this just the way things are done? I, you know, Jimmy Carter said uh, a few years ago that the United States has no functioning democracy. I think that a big reason for that is because we have no functioning press, and CNN is one of the worst offenders. I think not not uh, not by not an outlier, but they are one of the worst offenders. I think. I'm, I have to admit, I'm slightly surprised at this. Slightly, not 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 shocked. Uh, I mean, this is just such bad journalism, and not just that it's bad journalism, but it doesn't. You know, I was taught uh, both in college and throughout my journalism career that what you're really going for uh, in in journalism is the surprise, right? And that often comes through when you get a smart person uh, talking about what they are expert in, that you will often get that surprise and these sort of organic, authentic answers. And so it's not just that giving them the answers or suggesting the answers, however they would phrase it, is um, unethical, right? And it is, but that it seems uh, 
antithetical to actually getting good ratings. What people remember is that is that uh, answer that surprises them that they're not expecting, and that they have to sort of wrestle with. Uh, as a critical thinker, as a citizen, and so this is not just bad journalism. It's 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 um, uh, it, you know it's just really it's bad for democracy. And, and let me say one other thing too. I think the trend towards uh, uh, the interview, right? Like like um, you know, throughout my career, I was always taught the interview is the beginning of the process, not the end. Right? You need to tell yeah. the story. But stories, how the context comes out. And, and that's not what CNN, and CNN is not alone, Fox, and you know many of the rest of them are, are the same. They're not trying to tell a story. They're trying to actually obfuscate the truth. They're trying to create a narrative. They're trying to speak their own truth into existence, right? Uh, and, and that's very binary, typically. You know, it's CNN and Fox. It's, it's, yeah. it's right and left. It's blue and red. But that's not how we live. And so this is just very dangerous um, very disappointing, even even with the low level of expectations I think most of us have of of the news media, and and um, disheartening, really, very disheartening. That was the voice of John Jeter, who we are always happy to have. John is an author, a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, former Washington Post bureau chief, and award-winning foreign correspondent on two continents. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come right back, so stay tuned. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, working with my co-host, Michelle Witte. In just the last four weeks, some of the most prominent museums in America have been forced to return ancient artifacts that were stolen, looted, or otherwise obtained illegally from their countries of origin. Investigators in New York seized 27 ancient artifacts valued at more than $13 million dollars from the famed Metropolitan Museum of Art after investigators in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office found that they had been taken illegally from Italy and Egypt. The J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles was forced to return millions of dollars worth of ancient sculpture, including some of the most important pieces in its collection to Italy and Greece. And Washington's Museum of the Bible, which is infamous for having so many stolen and looted pieces in its collection, Uh, was forced to return 10,000 ancient artifacts to Egypt, Iraq, Greece, and Italy that were deemed to be stolen or looted. The owners of the museum, who founded the Hobby Lobby chain of stores, claimed that they did not know the origins of the pieces, but they returned them and paid a multi-million dollar fine in exchange for not being prosecuted. We're joined by James Early, former Director of Cultural Heritage Policy at the Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage, at the Smithsonian Institution, and a board member at the Institute for Policy Studies. James, it's so good to have you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me about this very, very important topic. Oh, man, this really is important. And that's why I'm so excited that you're with us today. Let's start with the overall uh, uh, issue. Why is it that so many major museums 
deal in stolen, looted, or trafficked antiquities. International antiquities protection laws are very clear. There has to be proven provenance for the pieces, but the laws seem to be ignored by some of the most highly respected institutions on earth. Why is that? Well, I would say it's it's quite a tragic irony. Characteristically, uh, this would be a result of uh, colonial uh, takeover of peoples of color. You've cited a number of European museums where repatriation is going on. But even more significantly is the start right here in the United States with Native Americans. And the irony of colonial, the tragic irony of colonialism, of conquest, of dehumanization, of of the outright uh, destruction of Native populations, and then to turn around and take their precious cultural expressions in terms of objects and mount them in museums, like the Smithsonian Institution, where I worked for 32 years, uh, where back in uh, the the late... uh, 80s, early 90s, a repatriation movement uh, went on about returning objects to Native Americans. And and so we have to grapple with this history, uh, particularly of colonial conquest. And in that context, then, uh, the lack of ethics and um, by these institutions that have all of these uh, really well-written philosophical documents and discussions of uh, protocols, uh, but who don't fail, who don't have the will uh, to actually live up uh, to these statements that they banny about in these international protocols and in these Mm -hmm. social media. So we have to hold those people really accountable for unethical behavior. That's really what it comes down to. And what role do the the big auction houses play in the antiquities trade? We hear from Sotheby's, Christie's, Bonham's, other auction houses, that they have only the highest integrity and the highest ethical standards. And then at the start of the Iraq War, for example, these same auction houses were flooded with Mesopotamian antiquities with fraudulent provenance or no provenance at all. How does that happen if they're so concerned about ethics? Well, they are not concerned about ethics. What they're concerned about is commodity trading. Uh, This is for uh, financial exchange, uh, notwithstanding of the fact that many people will have historical and or aesthetic interest uh, in certain objects, uh, that is overruled by uh, the failure to live up to uh, their basic ethical standards because they're trading uh, in, in, in funds. Uh, there, there is an exchange of money that goes into this. And unless uh, the aggrieved populations and our uh, staff, uh, experts who are from those degree populations are inside these institutions, mixed with uh, other people who may not be uh, of those backgrounds, but who want to live up to those standards, but who don't run those institutions, then we will see very little change. Um, in the case of the Smithsonian Institution, for example, in the last couple of years, uh, with a new South African director at the National Museum of um, uh, African uh, Art there, uh, they have mounted a process of repatriation of uh, Benin bronzes, uh, which comes out of the 1800s of a punitive ex- mm-hmm. uh, uh, expedition uh, led by Britain, which demolished uh, the Benin Empire, uh, took those objects, uh, sold many of them to pay for their destruction of the country, gave many of those objects to some of their soldiers, and the rest they put in into museums. Well, in the, in the case of this new director at the Smithsonian Institution National Museum of African Art, 
Uh, we've got a proactive person who's saying that um, she feels insulted. She feels wounded uh, as a South African uh, to see those artifacts on the wall. And so they have dismounted those, and they have begun a process of talking to uh, the present government of Nigeria, uh, as well as other institutions about repatriation. This also happened to the Robert McCormick Adams, who was secretary of the Smithsonian uh, back in the 80s, early 90s, on the repatriation of Indian remains, uh, in which the National Museum of Natural History of the Smithsonian uh, really did not want to enter into that. But this was a period of discussion of the development of the National Museum of the American Indian, and so that you had American Indian expert voices who came in. And it really then opens up a, a, a broader discussion of the smugness and the assumptions that we go about about museums and the objects in museums, and what is our responsibility as citizens uh, to hold people who are running these institutions accountable to the ethical standards that are well rehearsed uh, in many uh, conferences and the like. But we see this uh, really divorce from that those protocols in terms of the unethical behavior. I want to ask you, too, about the internal workings of this. Are museum purchasers aware when they purchase looted artifacts, that that's what they're doing? Are, are the curators aware, or are they are they being taken advantage of? Are they just pretending that they don't know that these things are looted because the purchase will improve the museum's holdings? Uh, how is this done? I think we have to start with a, a basic issue, is that if these people are trained experts, then they should be doing the obvious, that is, looking into the provenance of art of of uh, of, of their collections, things that they are collecting. Uh, they are derelict in their duties if they don't uh, start out with that premise. Given the history of uh, taking these objects, of looting these objects from grave sites or from the destructions of certain civilizations, so it's a baseline expertise issue, and one cannot claim in the first instance that they were taken advantage of that they did not know. So the responsibility really is on the museum directors and museum curators uh, to look first into the provenance of these articles and determine and, and to mm -hmm. determine uh, uh, if this is a legitimate engagement of collecting objects or purchasing objects. That's where it really, really starts. And so for all of those uh, at the Metropolitan, uh, uh, these broker houses, etc., who claim that they did not know, uh, then they should not be in those positions. It, it means right. they're in their basic professional duty. Right. Law enforcement has had some real success uh, recently in returning artifacts. I mentioned in the intro the, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Getty, the Museum of the Bible. Uh, but what about artifacts that fall before the treaties that protect antiquities uh, were enacted? I'm thinking specifically about the Parthenon marbles. They were looted from the Parthenon by Ottoman authorities and purchased by Lord Elgin, who took them back to England in the 19th century. And then after he went broke, he sold them to the British Museum, uh, where they've been ever since. The Greek government, with very broad international support, has tried to get them back for more than a century, but to no avail. And the British just will not engage in talks about repatriating these things. The Egyptians, meanwhile, are trying to get the Rosetta Stone back from the British. It's also in the British Museum. The Egyptians want several obelisks back from the French. 
et cetera, et cetera. You know, we can talk about, about Mayan and Aztec antiquities and about things from Cambodia, from Angkor Wat and all over the world. This thing, this kind of thing takes place. Is there any recourse in cases like these where, where the antiquities moved before international antiquities protection treaties? Yes. Uh, and, and that is, you know, there is a phrase from uh, African-American political struggle that says they say that freedom is a constant struggle. Uh, oh, Lord, I must be free. Uh, <laughs> same thing, uh, reparations, which is now uh, a current discussion about reparation from slavery and colonialism. And this falls into that broader context about um, repair and repatriation uh, of the spiritual, the cultural, the aesthetic expressions of people dating back centuries. And so as long as cultures are rooted, uh, uh, connected to their past, they will continue to raise these issues. And as the correlation of forces between nations changes, as we are seeing presently going on in the world, uh, we will hear more and more vocal representatives of these countries, whether they be smaller European countries relative uh, to the quote-unquote sun never setting on the British Empire. Well, the sun did set on the British Empire, and the people that they were overseeing, both in terms of Europe and other places around the world, will continue to demand. And, and that is what has, has to happen. And that is indeed what is happening. So uh, this is going to be a long course into the future, uh, but it is a very good moment in which we're seeing in the case of New York, uh, which uh, claims that it has an unprecedented uh, uh, grouping of people uh, both of cultural experts uh, and of investigators who work mm-hmm. not just leaving it to museum personnel who don't have the legal background, per se, or the people power to do that, but they have investigative units. And so therein, perhaps we see a model what, of what all nations should start to develop within their ministries of culture, uh, is to have organized teams that continue to be the vocal representative for the restoration of their past uh, in order for them to make a determination of how they want to share with the rest of the world. Indeed. Uh, Is the problem of looted antiquities uh, widespread among museums, or are these examples that we've been talking about uh, outliers? Uh, Are there good examples in your experience of museums that are doing things the right way uh, there's there's a joke that literally everything in the British Museum is looted, that if the British Museum returned its looted and stolen antiquities, it wouldn't have anything in its collection. We know that the Met and the Getty have had ongoing problems, and I mean like back to the, to the 80s. The Museum of the Bible is, in my own personal opinion, an organized uh, crime racket. Uh, everything that they have is is looted and stolen. But are there any museums that are role models? for the ownership and the display of antiquities besides those that are sort of in situ, like in Cairo and Rome and Athens? Well, I I don't follow it closely enough to suggest where uh, there may be other positive precedents, but certainly in the case of the Metropolitan in New York State now, where we have this team of uh, expert curators with an investigative unit that works jointly, this Mm -hmm. is a model uh, the late uh, Marty Sullivan, who was um, director of the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery, uh, who also sat on the State Department's uh, uh, protocols for looking at antiquities, uh, was another exemplar, if you will, in returning the Onondaga uh, Indian belt uh, when he worked in a state museum in New York City. 
So we have multiple examples that can be found, um, plural examples, not just one size fits all, where people mm-hmm. are proactive about the ethical dimensions of what they're doing, uh, who are proactive uh, about uh, democratic relations among people and nations within this regard to their, to their cultural and spiritual artifacts. Uh, there are many examples to be followed. And so what we have to do in this moment is to look at those cases, uh, those positive cases that are being the case of the Smithsonian National Museum of, of African Art, for example, uh, mm-hmm. under the leadership of, of Lonnie Bunch, who is the director of the, the secretary of the Smithsonian Institution. These are a number of the examples, a plural positive examples, that we can learn from and take initiative. But the public has to demand that these institutions step forward and do so, and not just leave it uh, to the few daring people who are ethically committed uh, within these institutions. They need public support uh, in order to be able to to maximize this potential moment. Is there any way, is it possible for private citizens to collect antiquities ethically, or is it something that people should generally stay away from? Uh, People should consult uh, with experts, that is, private citizens, when they want to collect these things. I, I can't recall the name of now the the former uh, secretary of the Smithsonian Institution who uh, had a private collection of Native American artifacts that was fundamentally unethical, and many oh. legal boundaries have been broken. And it was only as a result of public scrutiny on the part of Native American citizens and Native American experts that uh, he was brought to heel on these issues. In this case, the collecting of illegal uh, feathers and and, and, uh, the like. But if private individuals want to collect, then there are many protocols to be consulted. Uh, There are many experts in museums to be consulted uh, to help them determine whether they are within an ethical and legal context uh, of collecting certain objects. They should Mm -hmm. not just go off uh, as the case of many of these uh, multimillionaires or billionaires uh, who have had interlocutors uh, to go out and, and collect for them and then claim ignorance, um, they are to be held responsible. So this is how individual citizens might go about that collecting. Wow. James Early, thank you so much for joining us. This was a I, I regret that the conversation was short because to me this is so important. It's something we should have a, a longer and more in-depth conversation about. But thanks for joining us. James Early is former director of cultural heritage policy at the Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage. That's at the Smithsonian Institution. And he's a board member at the Institute for Policy Studies, one of my old alma maters. Thanks for joining us. Um, Do we want to take a break, Michelle, or should we just go uh, straight into things? We should say that Queen Elizabeth has died. Mm -hmm. She died about 15 minutes ago, and uh, the BBC announced that King Charles and the Queen Consort are going to spend the night at Balmoral and address uh, the nation to tomorrow. That's um, exactly what I noticed, John, because there had been a little bit of question as to how uh, Camilla was going to be referred yes. to. And so yes, I guess it's going to be going to be queen consort now it's i mean on it's like woo titillating and on the other hand uh so utterly meaningless what we call this woman uh but yeah i also didn't know it might not he might decide he's not going to be king charles he might decide he's going to go right. by any of his other like ro- royal other names, names. philip yeah. arthur something something so we'll see. strange yeah 
strange. Do you remember not too long ago, I'm going to say in the past decade, there were there were rumors that Charles might even uh, decide not to become king yeah. and pass it down to uh, William. Mm-hmm. But apparently that's not the case. I mean, I think that was a lot of that was. Uh, I think that the sort of distance we have now from the death of, of Princess Diana and yeah. all of the controversy about their marriage and its ending has made, you know, like the people really disliked Prince Charles for a long time, but I think yes. that's kind of gone away. And so now, yeah, I mean, it's not like he's too old to do the job. No, such as it no. is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know what? Yeah. Here, I'll feel I'll feel a little bit sad that Harry didn't make it. That's the one. That's the little bit of sympathy that I can come up with for this. I mean, this is just. This... I, I, feel, I feel bad about that. I don't. Yeah. Do, do you? He got on a plane apparently and just isn't there yet. Do you buy any of the arguments that uh, the royal family is like a a good tool for tourism and a, a nice tradition worth upholding, et cetera, et cetera. Do you, I mean, to me, it just seems like it seems having a Royal line seems like such an anachronism, right. And such a, yeah. a weird waste of money, but there are people who will really defend it. I, I didn't know if you were a secret Royal defender or not. Oh no, I'm, I'm not. Um, I mean, I love to look at fancy jewels and there are countries where people really, I I think a lot of the Scandinavian countries really like their Royal families and appreciate them, but I think they, they operate with a lot less pomp and circumstance and at much less expense, I think. Oh my gosh. Yes. I I read today um, in, I think it was in the Washington post that, that today is the 50th anniversary of, um, of Marguerite becoming queen of the Netherlands. And for a second, uh, I had forgotten that there was a queen of the Netherlands, but you're right. There are Kings and Queens of Sweden and Norway and Denmark. And I don't have the foggiest idea who those people are. I talked to some Danish friends who said, yeah, we like the, you know, the princess rides around on a bicycle. We think she's cool. You know? Yeah. We, we definitely did not like, uh, our, Kings and Queens in Greece, because in part, they weren't Greek. They were imposed on us by the the great powers. Mm. In fact, the first King of Greece was Otto the first. Um, he was German. Classic and he Greek was name, king, Otto. Yeah. Cla- Otto, classic Greek name. He was King of Greece for 33 years. And the son of a gun never learned to speak Greek, mm-hmm. which was just so offensive that he actually went to Germany on vacation in, um, in 1863, and uh, and the Greeks sent word to him to not bother coming back, or they were going to behead him. There's no, and then he's no Catherine the Great, eh? No, no, and and he he didn't, and he's buried in some little grave in in Munich someplace. But uh, we, the royal family in Greece, came back. Um, we exiled them twice, you know, after the first world war again in 1967. And finally there was a referendum and the Greeks voted like 97 to three to, uh, to end the monarchy. (laughs) They were only allowed back in the country, like in the last two years. That's it. Yeah. 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 Not for us. No. So I guess we'll have a, we'll have a, another coronation soon. Yeah, seems that way. Seems that way. You know the old uh, the old saying: uh, the, the king is dead, long live the king. Yep. So this is the queen is dead, long live the king. Yep. Yep. Uh, let me tell you some other news, John. Uh, did you know that fentanyl test strips, not fentanyl, 
but the test right. strips are illegal in 19 states. What? Yeah, no. this is an article Why? in Stat uh, about this, right? Saying fentanyl test strips can help save lives. People do people do use them in the real world to test drugs, especially because we have this overdose problem and this accidental overdose problem that is very much being exacerbated uh, by the presence of fentanyl where people don't expect it. And I don't mean on door handles or on a dollar bill. But I mean, in drugs that you intend to use, right, which change the changes the effect they have. And so people, you know, you can use these test strips to see what is actually in uh, in the drugs that you attend, intend to take to see if they contain uh, something that you don't expect. And so some states are trying to increase access to these tools, understanding that, you know, people are doing drugs and you can help them not die while they do it, while simultaneously you work to, you know, um, create conditions under which fewer people will want to use them. So some states are trying to broaden access to these kinds of harm prevention tools, uh, while a bunch mm. of others have decided, no, we want them to be illegal because uh, they can help, you know, sometimes people who are manufacturing drugs will use them also. It's wild. You know, this is the same perverted argument that people used against the availability of, of birth control. Right. You know, it, oh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make people promiscuous. So we can't have birth control. It's like, God forbid you should save a life now by allowing test strips to be disseminated. It's because oh. they're they're categorized as drug paraphernalia. And Ridiculous. so, yeah, apparently uh, there was some effort to change these laws in Florida and in Kansas, but they just couldn't get enough support. It didn't it, it didn't uh, galvanize people. Just just it's so sad. It is really you know, it is like saying. Uh, so you deserve to die if you use drugs. Yeah, right. And again, right. when we are looking at this, this a truly like globally unprecedented uh, overdose crisis, uh, you know, the idea that we're going to do the same thing we do with all, um, you know, w with crime, which is just continue trying to use the same tactics and hope that they have a different effect while, you know, these numbers go up every year and they start yes. to include people who are traditionally, you know, um, the less deserving dead. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to, I don't want to suggest that the reason people should embrace harm reduction tools is because it's not simply drug addicts who are dying, uh, but people who, you know, like kids who might go to the club and want to do a club drug every now and then. That that shouldn't be uh, what makes us care, right? We should care about people who are doing drugs. Uh, but, you know, the fact that, you know, this is going to be now withheld from like some suburban politician's uh, teenager who wants to go and do some, you know, d do a drug every once in a while, not become an addict. That's, it's just bonkers. To yeah. Me. Yeah. Crazy. Just crazy. Really sad. Oh, well, I think that I think that's where we have to leave it, John. Uh, I, yeah. I want to say Quick show today. Yeah. Went by fast. I knew that art conversation was going to be fun. I want to say thanks, of course, to James Early and to all of the other guests who joined us. And thanks to the producers and engineers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Woody, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.